Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. Your Holy Spirit is in this room. I know I felt it um, during worship. I'm excited about what you have for us this morning. Lord, we invite you to continue to be here speaking to each of us individually. Um, It's pretty amazing even that that you're able to do that and that you have a a different calling for each of us. But Lord, pray we, we would be receptive to what you have for us this morning as we open your word and examine it. I pray you would help us to understand it. I pray you would help us to see how we might apply it to our own lives in the context of, of where we are today, in our culture around us, in, in this country, in this state, in this town. Um, Lord, Lord, show us how we should respond to what you are, are speaking to our hearts and our lives this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meet freely here, to gather and worship you without any worry or concern, which we shouldn't take for granted. Um, and, and just pray you would guide us through, through this time. We thank you so much for the many ways you have blessed us and are at work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I, you just heard, maybe for the first time, maybe not for the first time, I myself and my family were planning to move to Colorado here sometime soon. We don't have an exact date yet. Um, we don't really want to leave Indiana, and we're well aware of the challenges that are involved in, in making that change. Um, back in my single days, it was a lot easier to think about changes like this than it is now with a young family, three young children. But there are some core reasons, I think, for why we're considering this, why we think this is a good idea. My hope is that those reasons will become apparent over these next few minutes. I want to start here by looking at just one key word. That one word we're going to start with is refuge. Refuge, dictionary definition, is a place of shelter, a place of protection, or a place of safety. It's a place where, especially when there's chaos or some sort of trouble, someone or something can go there and find an improved sense of peace and protection. When I hear refuge, oftentimes my brain goes to a wildlife refuge, um, an area set aside for certain species to really thrive. They might struggle somewhere else. The refuge is a special place for them. Here in the U.S., we have national wildlife refuges. They're home to thousands of species of birds and mammals, reptiles, amphibians, fish, invertebrates, plants, long list of things. They're havens for about 380 endangered species, everything from the Florida panther to the polar bear to little organisms we've never seen and probably don't even really care much about. The Yukon Flats is a national wildlife refuge. Um, One of these refuges, it's in Alaska. It's a place where one of my favorite animals since childhood is found, and that's the lynx. Something about them, maybe that's the little tufts of hair on their ears. Um, in fact, you look at them and they look warm and snuggly, but they're also fast and fierce. Um, they're, they're strong and just something elegant about them. And they use some of those gifts, their strength and their speed, to catch and feed largely on American hares and other kind of small, spray, small prey species. But they, they need a certain environment to really do well and, and continue well. Uh, They need preferably a mixed habitat, 
partly with young forests and thick vegetation, which is where they can do their hunting, find those rabbits and the squirrels and whatever else might be there. But they also need a, a, a larger, older forest with a canopy and a good place where they can make a den and feel safe and raise young. So if that habitat is fractured, if there's separation or it's just not available, or if the prey species they need to eat are, are disappearing or they're in low supply, um, they have problems and they're threatened by that. And they're also threatened by changes in the climate, by wildfires, by human activities such as building new roads. Um, they're also threatened by predators such as wolves and coyotes. The good news is that refuges are a safer place for them. So the lynx does a little bit better in the Yukon Flats National Wildlife Refuge than it might in other places. No, the refuge doesn't eliminate all of the predators, but it does put them in a better position and, and minimizes those avoidable threats and helps meet some of those needs and provide a stable place where they can thrive. So with that picture of the lynx and, and a refuge where the lynx can, can thrive, let that settle in your mind. And as you do, what words come to your mind? What other words define that sense of refuge? If you're quick, you can call something out, but I've got a list of my own. Anything come to mind? Safety. I heard something, but I missed it. Provision, excellent. Safety was the first word on my list, Donna. And I've got protection. Thrive, I think that's a really interesting word. Survive, recovery, restoration. That's gonna be a neat word as we go forward and start looking at what we see in scripture. Diversity, rest, there's a lot of really great words there, right? Pretty important words too. And we'll revisit some of these words as we move forward in this message. So with that picture and foundation, let's look at refuge in scripture. We actually find it a lot in scripture. Certainly not gonna try and do an exhaustive study of it this morning. Um, but want to go to the, the book of Ruth, a simple book many of you may be familiar with, a fairly nice, short narrative story we can read. It's a tragic story, but also a really sweet story. And I, I think we get a good picture of refuge in a certain, certain part of that story. So Ruth, if you're, if you're trying to remember, was a Moabite. She married a Jew, um, which wasn't forbidden for them to marry, but it did have its challenges. Um, so she was in Moab and married the son of Naomi. So Naomi was her mother-in-law. And at one point early on in the story, as we read it in, in scripture, Naomi lost her husband. Then later, Ruth also lost her husband and, and his brother also died. So three of them, significant men in their lives had all passed away. Ruth, she, she was in Moab, but she opted to go with Naomi as she returned to her homeland and went to Bethlehem in the land of Judah with Naomi. It was a surprise to Naomi and I'm sure many other people there. But I want to look at a specific verse. We find it in chapter 2, verse 12. And this is where Boaz, who was a relative of, Na of Naomi, was speaking to Ruth after having learned about the death of her husband and all that Ruth had done for Naomi. Boaz was telling her how much he admired her character, and he says these words. He says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. There's that word, refuge. Ruth was not alone in her difficult journey of losing a husband, having to relocate to a new place where she probably didn't really feel like she belonged at times. 
She had a source of refuge despite the geography. And the refuge wasn't Boaz, it wasn't her family, it wasn't some sort of wealth. The Lord was her refuge. He was a source of safety, a source of protection, a source of restoration. From what she had been through, he was a source of comfort and rest. It was noticeable. Boaz could see it in her that she had this this refuge. It would be interesting to talk to him and exactly what he saw in her, but he could see it. We also get some great imagery in in this verse of the hen protecting her chicks. She provides a place of warmth, a safe place for those chicks to run to, a place where they can maybe even hang out and not even have to see what's around them. They can be completely in the dark, completely protected. A place where they can be calm, they can recover from whatever frightening experiences they've experienced out in that big bad world and prepare again for going out when things are safe and when they're ready. God is a great refuge. God, the God of Israel, even though Ruth was not an Israelite by birth herself, um, God was her refuge. And he was a refuge each one of us can turn to today, regardless of our background or our situation, our nationality, whatever it may be. Do you get that sense from the Lord? Can you recall times when he served as your refuge? I think it's important to remember sometimes if we have those memories. Maybe it was in his word that you found a source of strength. Maybe during a difficult time when you really didn't have the strength or willpower to do much of anything, maybe it was even difficult to pray. Um, Because of those difficult experiences, there was just so much going on, but he met you and provided the source of trust and healing that you needed. Have you experienced that? I'm sure at least some of you have. Praise the Lord for that. If you haven't experienced his refuge, maybe a a couple challenges. My first challenge would be to know him if you don't. If you haven't put your faith in him and trust in him, there is no better time than today. You can do that this very moment in your seat, or you can wait till the end of the service. We'll have a prayer team up here and pastors available who would love, love, love to pray with you and help you better better understand how to know him and how to know how to turn to him as a source of great refuge, way better refuge than you're gonna get anywhere else. If you do already know him, but you just haven't really experienced that need or had that life experience where you needed to turn to him strongly for refuge, just encourage you to keep listening, keep talking to him, keep spending time in his word, and I'm pretty confident you will find the refuge you need when that time comes. Continuing to look at refuge um, and really the character of God, this character of God that I think is so great, I want to look at the first half of Psalm 71. And I'll just start reading it and and pause a few times as we go. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 71, it says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. So we see here refuge mentioned right off the get-go. God is a source of shelter, protection, safety. Verse 2 says, In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. So not only is he a refuge, a place to hide, but he is our salvation. And we, salvation in multiple ways, a great salvation. Verse 3 says, Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. I think 
The always in that, in that verse, that's a pretty strong word. He is always there to be our refuge, not just sometimes when he feels like it. He never leaves us. He provides deliverance. He is strong. Verse 4, deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. We just sang about that in the, in the last song. Um, that, that grasp, not, nothing can keep a grasp on us with, with, with our God in control, which he is in control. He's able to deliver us from the, that grasp of the wicked and those who are evil and cruel. Verse 5, for you've been my hope. I love that word hope. Sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. So in those times of, of needing refuge, we have a confident hope. Boy, is that encouraging. Verse 6, from birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. God is reliable. He is worthy of all of our praise. Amen? I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. There are times, at least for some people, get that desperate feeling like David, who's probably the author of this psalm, was in. The feeling of being unwanted. The feeling of being helpless. It's a tragic, sad place to be. But we can keep reading. It says, do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. He is our great helper. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. As for me, I will always have hope. There's that word again. I will praise you more and more. We'll stop there, but that psalm is just full of reference to God's strength, God's refuge that he provides for us, and just as importantly, if not more importantly, our source of hope. With faith in him, we have a safe place and an incredible source of hope. As a church, we've seen recently in Ephesians that at one time we did not have hope. We were dead. But now through Christ, we are alive and have a really great hope. So I've been tested on this a little bit lately. Um, for the past eight years, I've had a dependable job, the one that brought me here to Indiana. It pays decently. The benefits are good. Work requirements aren't too difficult, as long as you don't mind getting some manure on your clothes once in a while, which I don't mind at all. Um, and it's pretty secure. We own a house in a neighborhood not too far from here. We love being near this church full of people we appreciate. But over the past 10 months, Misha and I have both kind of sensed a clear calling to go to a new ministry that's taking us away from a lot of these securities. To be honest, it's frightening. To be honest, it's uncomfortable. Moving to the high plains of Northeast Colorado, even though I like the state of Colorado, wasn't really on the list of things I wanted to do. It wasn't for Misha either. But to be honest, there's nothing I would rather do if this is the direction God would have us to go. I don't need to worry one iota because God is my refuge. There might be tough times ahead. I'm sure there are. Even these past few months, there's been a few little challenges, nothing major yet. But my hope is great, and I know with great confidence that God is in control. 
So we've talked about refuge. Let's add one letter to that word and talk about refugee. What is a refugee? It's a term that's used internationally to define a person who has been forced to leave their country in order to escape war or some sort of persecution or some other violation of human rights in hopes of finding protection in another country. It describes a category of people who have been displaced, oftentimes as a matter of life and death. It's a pretty, pretty serious situation most refugees are facing. What they need is the refuge we just talked about, as well as a more physical um, kind of refuge. But they need that safe place to go. So let's examine what Scripture has to say about refugees, and then we'll wrestle with what we see today in our current culture and climate. Um, we'll, we'll talk through some of the issues in our community, in our country, and in our world. There's lots of places we could go. Deuteronomy is full of some great references. We'll just look at one, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. I think the message is clear here. Speaking of God, it says that he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you, and this is referring to the Israelites, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Do not forget that. I add that little extra sentence on the end. The Old Testament is a great place to learn about the character of God. I think that's a large part of, of why we have all those many books of the Old Testament, some of which are difficult to read, but there's so much about the character of God, and we certainly see it in these two verses. The Old Testament gives us some, puts some strong emphasis on four groups of people, three of whom we saw in, in these verses. There's the orphans, the widows, those who are poor, and the displaced. And we could use a number of different terms for those who have been displaced. We could say foreigners, we can say sojourners, aliens, or refugees. It might even just depend what translation you're using. There's a number of words there. But they're all a similar, similar group of people. So here in Deuteronomy, God is reminding the Israelites that they themselves had been displaced and had lived the life of an outsider. And as committed as he seemed to the Israelites, we see a lot of emphasis on the Israelites in the Old Testament, but it's broader than that. God cares about foreigners, no matter where they are from, the outsiders, the people who are struggling, the people who are marginalized. He cares about refugees. I could list off many more references to emphasize this, but I think it might be more interesting to quickly list off some of the people in Scripture who were displaced or lived some sort of refugee life for at least a portion of their life. Ready for this? So we've got Adam and Eve. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden in response to sin, right from the beginning. Cain was displaced by God in response to sin. Abraham and Sarah were displaced by famine, going to Egypt. And then they were displaced by authorities in Egypt. Lot was displaced by invading kings and later displaced by God from a place under imminent judgment. Hagar and Ishmael were displaced by persecution from Sarai and went into the desert. Isaac and Rebekah were displaced by famine to the land of the Philistines. Jacob was displaced by a threat of violence from Esau and went to Haran. Later, he was displaced by famine to Egypt. Esau was displaced by scarcity and conflict, going to Seir. Joseph was displaced by international human trafficking. Okay, now we're getting out of the first book of the Bible. Naomi was displaced by famine into Moab. David was displaced 
a lot. I'll just leave it at that for him. And then we get to Elijah. He too was displaced a lot. Nehemiah and Ezra were displaced to Babylon. Then they were, able, they were later able to return to Jerusalem. Esther, Mordecai, Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were all exiled to Babylon. Jeremiah was taken by force with other refugees to flee attack from Babylon and went, went into Egypt. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were displaced by political persecution. They went into Egypt. We can read it. In Matthew 2, it says, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This is clearly a refugee situation. This was Jesus. Most members of the early church in Jerusalem were displaced due to religious persecution. Acts 8.1 tells us that a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Philip and Peter were displaced by religious persecution. Aquila and Priscilla were displaced by ethnic persecution as Jews forced to leave Rome. It's quite a list, huh? An amazing thing as I start to look through that list is realizing that God oftentimes uses those who have been displaced to bring positive and great change to places where they end up. In Scripture, think of Joseph and the incredible impact he had in Egypt. Yes, he went through incredible times, and then God did some pretty amazing things. Think of Daniel and the impact he had in Babylon. And that's not to make light of the experiences of the displaced. It's horrific what many people go through, but God never abandons them, and he is a source of refuge. I skipped one, so back to Ruth. She was a woman in the family line of Jesus. Let's look at a few more verses there in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. Um, we'll start in verse 10, and this is Ruth speaking now, responding to some nice comments from Boaz. I don't think he was flirting with her at this point. Um, if you know later in the story, things get a little romantic. We won't dwell on that. But Ruth says here, at, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. I guess she's not speaking yet. Here she says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? So stop here and and point out that Boaz's kindness was shocking to Ruth. She was just a migrant worker, really, working in his fields. She wasn't really noticed by anybody. She wasn't wanted by anybody. She was just there trying to survive day by day. Verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about you, what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. And that's no easy thing. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord of the God, Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We just saw that verse earlier. But again, God's source of protection, restoration, and rest jumps out in this. But I love this last verse. May, this is Ruth speaking. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. In these few verses, we hear what Ruth was going through and how she was coping. The crazy thing is that Ruth 
kind of did this by choice. She chose to go with Naomi. It does mean that she, today's definition of refugee, she doesn't quite fit that definition, but there's a lot of similarities that I think we can get some important things from. She was a foreigner. She had been displaced. Her story represents the core issues well. She moved to a place where she didn't know people. She didn't have connections. She was an outsider. She was needing refuge from God. She was trying to find favor in the eyes of people who can provide housing, food, and other basics of life in order to survive. She didn't have any standing. She kind of had to feel content just simply living the life of a servant. And as she says in verse 13, the simple act of someone speaking kindly to her meant so much to her. Does this seem relatable today? You think there's people in similar situations today? There's a lot of them. For me, I'm motivated to go into ministry working with refugees specifically. People like Ruth or Ishmael or Joseph or Aquila. And there's several core reasons. First one is I think the Bible makes it pretty clear the importance of caring for foreigners and refugees, of being thoughtful and caring about them as I'm able or as we're able. I want to obey that. They are one of those four groups that are emphasized over and over in Scripture, and I want to take every opportunity I have to demonstrate love towards them in some way. Secondly, the Lord has done so much for me. He's saved me. He's blessed me in many, many ways. I feel like I've lived a spoiled life in many ways. It seems like the least I can do is to do what I can to, to love others and to respond and share what he's done with me uh, with others so that others would know him. Thirdly, refugees and other groups of displaced people have been through a lot. Ruth's story gives us a little bit of a glimpse into that, but actually kind of compels to other stories we see in Scripture and we see today around us. If we read the news, it's not hard to find some of those horrific stories. There's incredible trauma. There's long-lasting difficulty and pain. There's rejection, a lot of rejection. There's extreme, sometimes constant feelings of being out of place. Through God's leading, I, I want to follow examples like we see in the New Testament, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, whether I aim to be like the Good Samaritan, or even there's another character in that story right at the end, the innkeeper, who, who brought in the, the injured man and provided a place for him. There's sometimes simple things that can go a long ways. Lastly, I feel almost selfish mentioning this point or this motivation, but I genuinely enjoy interacting uh, with people from different cultures and different backgrounds. It's great fun to me. Um, people from different countries, different cultures, people who enjoy different kinds of food, celebrate different events and holidays in different ways than I do. I find it all kind of interesting and it adds to the appeal of engaging with displaced people from other countries while also recognizing that I'm all, often interacting maybe with people who have gone through intense pain and have big challenges that I can't, I can't fix all of their challenges or issues alone. As we look at the situation with refugees, specifically in our world today, there's approximately 100 million people who have been forcibly displaced. They've had to flee their homes because of persecution, war, or some other violation of human rights. More than 33 million of, of them 
are actual refugees, which means they have had to not only leave their home, but they've had to leave their country. That includes more than six million people that just recently have been displaced from Ukraine. More than three quarters of the world's refugees have been displaced for more than five years. It's a long-term issue. In 2021, 0.2% of the world's total refugee population was resettled, finding a place they could call their new home. That was 0.2%. Also in 2021, the U.S. resettled 13,700 people, and that's second to Canada, which had 20,400 people. Also in 2021, the U.S. received 188,900 claims for asylum. I'll let you wrestle with the numbers. I won't say anything more on those, but I, I think it shows that it's a big issue. So in wrestling with how to respond, I, I want to look at a simple diagram and walk through kind of a piece together story um, with the experience of a modern day refugee. It starts with life in a country of origin represented by the green line up high on the left on the diagram. A boy named Mohammed was born and raised in Somalia, a place where he felt a strong sense of normalcy and belonging. But as a young teenager, he was forced to flee to Kenya with his parents and siblings due to the ongoing violence that has been plaguing Somalia since civil war erupted in 1991, a long time ago. Even though his father had been a successful businessman, their family was immediately in a free fall. That's the red line you see. They lost all sense of security and no longer had reliable sources for their basic, basic needs. Shelter, food, water, medical care. They wouldn't have been able to survive very long on their own. If they hadn't been able to make their way to Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya, there they were received by the UN, they were given refugee status, and helped to have their basic necessities met. That security, shelter, food, water, medical care, they stabilized, represented by the yellow line. However, this life was nothing like their life in Somalia. They were just barely surviving from day to day, along with the 200,000 other refugees in the camp. The worst thing about being in Kakuma was that Mohammed lost all sense of hope. There's that word again that I think is so critical. He lost a sense of dignity. He was being forced to always be dependent on other people for basic survival needs. He was stuck on that yellow line. Over the next 12 years, as Muhammad grew up into adulthood and his memories of Somalia became fuzzy, he showed some signs of recovery, the gradual rising green line on the right. He experienced a sense of community and belonging there in the refugee camp as he made some lifelong friends, helped by his Muslim faith. He also met his wife, married, and had two children. He strengthened his capacity as he developed his language skills and learned how to work as an interpreter. But there were only glimpses of freedom on the days he was allowed to go outside of camp and interpret on behalf of another refugee. He really longed for a sense of integration, a solid legal standing. Yes, he was legally allowed to stay in the camp, but he would do anything to get out of there and to a better place. When he finally heard the news that he and his wife and children had a chance to be resettled to the United States, he was overjoyed at the prospect of settling into a new life there. Muhammad and his family arrived in the United States with one backpack each and nothing else to their names. 
the resettlement agency had secured their emergency needs. However, this process wasn't the freedom Muhammad had imagined. Their family didn't have any say in where they would first live or where the children would go to school. Desiring some sense of self-determination, Muhammad made the decision to move from the original Minneapolis location to a rural town in Colorado with a meatpacking facility to join a fellow refugee that he had met in the refugee camp. His friend told him that the pay was good and the town was safe. So Muhammad went to the town ahead of his family and slept on his friend's couch. For three months, he saved money to pay off the lease his family would need to break at their current location in Minneapolis. And he put their names on a wait list for a low-income apartment complex. Once the apartment opened up, his family was able to join him. With their emergency needs now met, living in yet another community, the first few months for his family were filled with steps towards recovery, again, slowly climbing up that green line. The children were enrolled in school. His wife, who spoke no English, began taking in-home English lessons, and she started to learn how to drive. But once again, there were challenges and obstacles in recovery. Things like housing. They wanted to, be, they wanted to move from their apartment to a rental home and put in multiple applications, only to be rejected every time. There were times they were told that a home had already been rented, only to see later white people coming to tour the home. They never considered purchasing a home. The cost was too high for one, and their Islamic teaching stated that they couldn't take interest-bearing loans, so that, that put, them out of, put it out of consideration. Additionally, they thought that purchasing a home would prevent them from moving in the future, and they were thinking about their children. They didn't want their children to end up working at the meatpacking facility. As they got older, they wanted them to be able to move to other cities and get education and employment opportunities. It was just really, really hard for them to make progress and to feel a sense of normalcy, a sense of home, to be respected in their society and have opportunities for the future. It felt like they had been forsaken by God, similar to David's situation in Psalm 71. They felt like they needed deliverance, even though they were in, in the United States where they had been resettled. A good thing. I'll leave Muhammad's story open-ended. He has made great progress in recovery, um, but the story is far from over. He's, he's a legal resident in the U.S., but he's wrestling with how he fits in his community. He doesn't feel that he's able to contribute very much, except for his work role, which is important. He is providing food for us, right? Government programs, they run out um, and they don't provide much support for him anymore. So what happens next? I want to point to just one, one, one point on the diagram at the top right, and that's mutual responsibility. So we're, we're talking about full integration here, and guess what? At least in my opinion, it shouldn't be entirely up to Muhammad, the refugee, to figure out how to further this long process of recovery and integration. Others in the community also play an important role, those around his family. So where does this bring us? Um, where does this put those of us that are not refugees? We're not foreigners or displaced in some way, especially here in Indiana, PA. It's not like we have a lot of refugees around us. But it's clear in Scripture that God cares about refugees, those who have been displaced. There were specific commands directed towards the Israelites in the Old Testament. Then Jesus in the New Testament, we read about his life and ministry here, and it's very clear the priorities he had. 
He encouraged his followers to also behave like that. And today, I really believe we are expected to care too. Not only to care, but to respond in some way. So back at, back at the diagram, just briefly, on that left, we saw the, the red line, the quick drop-off. Those are some really critical activities to meet those basic needs of people. Most of us in this room will probably never play a role in that. Maybe none of us will. Uh, but as we look at the green and blue lines, I think many of us will have opportunities to play some sort of role. Even here in Indiana, PA, there are refugee families here in, in town. I, I've met two of them. In fact, yesterday evening I spent time with a refugee. No, I'm going to start crying now. Maybe I shouldn't tell that. Met with an Afghan refugee family last night and heard, heard them talk about their son who they had to leave in Afghanistan when they were fleeing the country and being evacuated. And he's still there, still trying to get, get out of Afghanistan. There was a, a big bomb went off in Kabul where he's at just two days ago. He's scared. His mom certainly is scared. I think she cries every day. They try to stay in touch as they can, but it, it's tough. And, and they're... They are here. They're working at our grocery stores today, tomorrow. Many of us have walked past them, probably have no idea what their story is. It's not like we need to dig into every person we walk past to figure out their story. Um, but they are here, and we do have opportunities. So the, I guess the questions are, are we ready to welcome them when we have opportunity to Indiana? Maybe to a social activity. Welcome them to our church. Will our kids be a friend to them at school? If maybe you're a landlord or an employer, are you willing to work with them in their less than perfect English, understand whatever paperwork complications come up because they don't have a credit history or something like that? There's other things. We're also surrounded by many international students. They're in a different situation. Most of them are here by choice. They haven't experienced traumatic events, most of them. Um, they don't intend probably to integrate here into the U.S. on, you know, on a long-term basis. Um, but they are here for a period of time, and there's opportunities there as well where we can interact with people from all over the world. Personally, I haven't done a lot of that until the last few months, and there's an international hospitality center here, here locally that Misha and I have been able to spend some time at, interacting with people from a long list of countries. It's a joyful, fun opportunity. So I want to just finish by encouraging the church in the area of hospitality. Look quickly at, at two verses, one from Hebrews and one from Romans. The one in Hebrews encourages us to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, and don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Wouldn't you want to show hospitality to angels? They're, those opportunities are great. Romans says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. And we shouldn't forget that. Christ has accepted us. The least we can do is accept others, and it brings praise to God, which is something I want to do for sure. I'll be f the first to admit that hospitality doesn't come naturally to me. I've failed it many times. Um, but I have done something sometimes. It's amazing, how, even this past week, we had a Turkish couple over for dinner a few days ago. 
I turned to Misha a few hours beforehand. I'm like, man, I just don't feel like doing this. I'm tired. I'm not in the mood. Our house is not the way we would like it to be for company to come over. But they came over. We had a wonderful evening talking about Turkish food and geography and culture. We learned so much. Who knows what they thought when they left. Um, But they can say that now that they've been here in Indiana for a period of time, when they go back to Turkey, they can at least say they've been in one American home. And I think there's a lot of international students that come here and maybe never enter an American home. I think maybe there's opportunity to th- there, but it's easy to come up with excuses. I'm a private person. I've been hurt in the past. What if I make a mistake and say something awkward, which by the way, I've done plenty of times. My house isn't nice enough or clean enough. I'll do it when it seems natural. I I can't relate to them. They're so different than me. It's easy to come up with excuses. It's a little bit harder to do it, but I think the rewards afterwards are so much greater than the the challenges in the front end. So I want to encourage encourage you in that. Boaz did it. He was kind and hospitable to Ruth. He helped her with her work arrangements in a time that she was feeling pretty awkward and out of place. He made sure she had food. He responded to what he felt he should do to make her feel welcome and important. So so for myself, in the next few months, I'll be moving to northeast corner of Colorado. It's an honor already to be part of an organization I think is very thoughtful in ways of engaging people who have been through a lot of difficult life circumstances, who continue to be faced with challenging circumstances, but who God loves just the same as he loves each one of us. So we'll look at those green and blue line issues, walk alongside people through whatever it may be. Sometimes it may just be a matter of listening, stopping and listening and caring. Um, And when there's a more active role to be had, do what we can. One part of my role will be managing a housing program designed specifically to work towards some of those goals of, of integration. And, and really feeling a part of society here. So there, there's a lot of people who've been through a lot of traumatic things, many people who have lost hope, and we've talked about hope. Maybe they've never really had hope. I would say it's worth the risk to reach out to them, to practice hospitality, even if it's awkward or inconvenient. As far as we Sandines, we would And in thinking about how you might play a role, we would love to have you as part of our support team, whether that's financially, through prayer, through encouragement. We'd also love to have a short-term team come to Fort Morgan, Colorado, maybe someday. Um, There's a variety of ways maybe you could be involved in that sort of refugee ministry. Um, But there's opportunities all around us. And lastly, before finishing, and the the worship team can come come on back up. If you are one of those people who's in a tough spot right now, feeling a bit like a refugee. Maybe you aren't technically a refugee, but you kind of feel like one. If you're out of place, out of sorts, remember that God is a great refuge in whom we find shelter, protection, comfort. You might not be a refugee, but all of those words that we talked about earlier that relate to refuge, the safety, protection, recovery, restoration, rest, thriving. He provides those things. He is completely capable of providing all of those things and so much more. 
Spend time with him. Spend time in the book of Psalms. We looked at just half of one. There's 150 of them. Reflect on Ephesians 2.19, where it points out how we can move to a place where we are no longer a foreigner or a stranger, but a fellow citizen with God's people and a member of his household because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, taking on the sin of those who would simply believe in him. That's all we have to do. He probably isn't going to instantaneously take away all of our problems, but he sure can provide us with every bit of strength and refuge we will ever need. Just like the lynx, with a good refuge will come a great hope for the future. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways you've blessed each one of us in, in this room. We could spend days just sharing the ways you have blessed us and worked in our lives. We thank you for that. We want to remember that. I pray you would also guide us as we aim to love and care for those around us. Yes, we want to share your gospel. Oftentimes that doesn't start with quoting verses out of the Bible, but simply stopping, asking a question, listening, caring. Lord, help us. Help us when we're tired and busy and just don't want to do those things that makes us uncomfortable. Help us to do it anyways. We thank you that we have that great refuge in you and a great, great hope for today, for tomorrow, for eternity. It's all because of what Jesus, what you have done for us on the cross. We thank you. We could never thank you enough. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.